0: Uh, David Garnowski, I'm, I'm really uh, excited to get to meet you and uh, welcome, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's a real delight to, to uh, talk to you in person. I've seen your work on Fee, uh, where I've published some work there too. And I know you have a lot of similar uh, values that I share. And I think it's great to have this time together.
0: Yeah, well, so the reason I wanted to, to chat, um, I don't even know how I came across your, your podcast. I think I was listening to somebody else's podcast. And I was just looking for something new. And so I started listening to it actually in the car with the kids uh, a couple of times. And they now they all love the intro to your, uh, it's a radio show called A yeah. Neighbor's Choice. Where, uh, the most electrifying show in radio, A Neighbor's Choice. <laughs> my, kid, my kids all, uh, when they hear it coming on. Um, but I found that and I, and I loved it. And you have a, I think it's separate from the radio show, a podcast called um, Things Hidden as well. Uh, which is kind of what I really want to get into. I'm, I'm, I think that's a reference to the Rene Girard book, Things Hidden Since the Foundations of the World. Um, but, but let me just start by asking you, this radio show, I mean, it's pretty radical stuff. It's not like mainstream stuff. It's not even like conservative radio or like liberal radio. It's like pretty radical, like peaceful, anarchist, voluntarist type stuff. How did you get that gig? And, and what's in the name, A Neighbor's Choice?
1: Well, I, th- I picked up a book called the Bible and I said, Hey, how do I explain this to the public? You know? And that's where we got started. You know, now here's the thing. It's not a religious program, you know, and that's clear. I try to make it a secular because, because, you know, the, the, the problem is with Christian media is they box themselves into this little like, like uh, you know, like a little sectarian bubble, you know, well, now you're doing religious media and here's secular news talk. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going to do news talk. We're going to go to secular news talk stations, but we're just going to talk about the way the world is from a perspective that's informed by the Bible. And let's just be honest about it. The West is thoroughly saturated in the uh, the stories and the imagination that is formed from Judeo-Christian stories. Whether we like it or not, whether we're atheists or not, we're swimming in Jesus's fishbowl. And so what my show is trying to do is to get people to, all right, try to notice the water. You know, you're swimming in this fishbowl, try How's the water, you know, test it out, feel what you're feeling, understand why you have the values that seem so baked in uh, to our culture, understand why culture is going in a certain direction. And then that will inform why the headlines seem so crazy today. And once you have that secret toolkit, which I have used mimetic theory, we, we can get into that a little bit.
0: Yeah.
1: theory provides a kind of secret toolkit in the back of your pocket that you can pull out and use to understand the craziness of our, of our times today. And it's not so crazy once you use, uh, you know, a kind of anthropological approach to what we see today. It's actually very predictable, and it's uh, kind of refreshing and gives you a lot of peace once you understand what's happening, you know?
0: Where where'd the name of neighbor's choice come from?
1: I don't know you know i i came i came up with the name and i don't know exactly what it means it means certain things depending on the day when i when someone asks me so
0: (laughs) it's like Um, it's like a band name you know you got to keep it a little keep it a little mysterious
1: yeah exactly
0: you know it's interesting you the way you you answered um that you know hey how do i how do i sort of share the ideas in the bible that i'm very passionate about share that the ideas of the christian faith but it's not a sort of christian show per se I find mean, it really interesting that you frame it that way because I find listening to it, at least the, the kind of church that I grew up in, which is sort of your typical evangelical um, politically conservative, pretty, pretty tied into politics and believing that you ought to be, you know, get, getting all into political stuff, you know, sort of your typical nineties, especially moral majority, whatever you your message when when politics comes to play, I think would be, would be kind of shocking and maybe even offensive to a lot of, at least the people, the kind of churches that I grew up with. Maybe not as much today because it's very apolitical. It's very much not about the political process. It's very much about radical pacifism, uh, maybe more in the line of Christian thinkers like Tolstoy than Christian thinkers like you know, whatever, uh you know, the typical, you know, Billy Graham or whoever, people who are playing the political games and and saying everybody of a certain church must vote for a certain party. You kind of don't play any of those games. Have you found have you gotten pushback from Christians for the way that you are sort of, I don't want to say apolitical, but like um you're you know, you're above the political squabbles, I would say.
1: Well, you know, I call myself a political atheist. Yeah. And sometimes being a political atheist is more offensive to some Christians than being a theological atheist. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: but, funny how that but, works.
1: But you know, but you know that's okay because, but but I really haven't seen any pushback, and I love hmm. Billy Graham and all those guys. I, I think they're wonderful, and I see my mission of introducing Jesus's culture of nonviolence to the church and the broader public. So I see it as a mission field. I see the church as a mission field that. We can try to get them to engage Jesus directly, right? So many times in church, and this is not any particular denomination. It really isn't. It's more of our Western context where this comes out, which is we want to objectify Jesus. You know, we know that it's wrong to objectify people in our relationships. You know, you should not objectify women. You should not objectify men. You know, these things, we know this but we objectify Jesus. We turn him into an object that we can put him into our pocket and say, hey, I'm in the in club now. I'm part of this denomination. I did this type of baptism. I think these theological thoughts, therefore I am a Christian. That's really Cartesian rather than Christian. That's Rene Descartes. I think blank, therefore I am. I think this type of baptism, therefore I am a real Christian. I think the nice and great, that's fine, those are all good things. I'm all with Orthodox Christianity. But the problem is, is that When you have only a theology of Jesus, you don't have the full Jesus, you see? Because the theology of Jesus, theology is the study of God. And when you only approach the Bible with a theological lens, when you're only looking at the text from what does this mean about God and who God is, you're missing half the picture. In fact, you may be missing more than half of the picture. Because Jesus says that he's the son of man more than he says he's the son of God, which means he emphasizes when he's doing things in his life for us to look at as a model for how to be human. And he's emphasizing, I'm the son of man, meaning I am the highest picture of what it means to be human. But we don't emphasize the anthropology that's found in the Bible. And if we don't, we have a disembodied Jesus, which is easily turned into an object that we can own and contain and make into our own image. That's why for so many years, people can have the best theology of Jesus, but still say, you know what? I support staying in Iraq one more year. Let's have a surge. Let's have a surge. 20,000 more troops to go barge down neighborhoods that don't want them there and putting soldiers' lives and using them as scapegoats to sacrifice for an empire that has nothing to do with being Christ-like. Nothing to do whatsoever, right? But the problem is we are being ill-equipped because we are always theologizing Jesus without using, wait, son of man? What's the subject that will help me understand humankind? anthropology now how do i look at the text with an anthropological perspective in mind and what does it tell me about human nature about human conflict and about how we engage with each other and fall into the patterns that we all find to be negative that's Uh, what we should be bringing to the
0: text it's funny i feel like culturally we're in a really interesting place i i not to, I don't want to go, go on too long with this, but to to give some context. So my own, you know, background, I I grew up, as I mentioned, in kind of a typical conservative Christian environment. And in my, in my mid-teens, I I kind of discovered the life of the mind, so to speak. Before that, it was just sports and Legos and whatever. But I, I started getting really interested in, you know, reading and diving into, it started with theology, really, because I grew up studying the Bible pretty heavy duty. And I, I started diving into a lot of different theological thinkers and, you know, debates on um, theology and whatnot. And that led to philosophy and that led to political philosophy and economics. But I tell people, you know, I became a, an anarchist, a voluntarist, however you want to call it, a political atheist. People ask, like, how did that come about? And it, it was a long process, but it really started with um. Two things that have really nothing to do with that directly: the, the Bible, a lot of Bible study, and, and C.S. Lewis, and and um, which kind of started me on my intellectual journey. And and as I came to this understanding of like, yeah, I remember I read a book by Greg Boyd many years ago, um, "The Myth of a Christian Nation," and he uses the the terminology that, you know, the kingdom of God doesn't use the kingdom of uh, this world's tools. The kingdom of God is about, you know, um, power under, not power over. It's like power through submission, et cetera. And understanding everything that Jesus was about, um, you know, I, uh, again, one more p- p- profound article by Stephen Legate in Liberty Magazine, an old paper magazine that they used to publish, like not even glossy pages. It was called The Call of Christ to Freedom. And and I was like in my late teens when I read this. And he says, you know, when Jesus told the rich man, give everything to the poor, it says the man walked away dejected. Jesus didn't send the disciples after him to shake him down and take his money. Right. And I I had this confrontation with the church that I was a part of, which was all about like. We got to ban um, exotic dancing in the city. We got to pass this, you know, ordinance to ban the, you know, adult nightclub or whatever. We got to, it was all about, you know, we got to ban, we got to ban sin and we got to, you know, get tax exemptions and whatever for virtue. Now I'm all for tax exemptions if they just apply to everyone all across the board. But I remember feeling really frustrated as I started to see, and then after 9-11 happened, that's when it really like broke me. Like I started to weep because I felt the blood on the hands of the Christian church in the United States, this desire for vengeance and war. And I came across Mark Twain's short story, the war prayer, which is about the Spanish American war, but the same thing that we're in here praying for our troops and for success. And I remember the church I went to at the time, they broadcast George Bush's speech in the church on the thing. And it was this very patriotic fervor. And it just, I kind of broke with that. And so I broke from like Christianity at the time, sort of institutional Christianity was very much in that like conservative pro-war law, you know, rah-rah milieu and let's, let's, you know, punish sin with the law. I broke from that. I think a lot of people in my generation did, but then I saw something equally disturbing. A lot of people from my generation then began what was kind of called like the emergent church They went the other direction. They said, well, no, the church is not meant to be um, politically conservative Republican. So instead, we got to be like politically leftist, liberal, social justice. So instead of using the law to punish sin, we got to use it to force virtue. We got to force people to give money to the poor. We got to force people, you know, to be kind and inclusive or whatever. And it was like the church was just as political, but in the other direction. And so I've kind of been away from Christianity formally in the church for many years, just because I don't. I haven't seen much that I like, and I'm bringing this home. This is a really long sort of setup for a question, but in recent years, I have seen a very interesting phenomenon. It's almost like religion and maybe even specifically Christianity has like re-emerged outside of the church itself. I would say like Jordan Peterson is kind of an example of that. I don't think he considers himself a Christian, but he's almost created a kind of revival of a hunger and interest in Christianity. I know a lot of young men who became like Orthodox Christian or Catholic because of Jordan Peter, there's sort of this weird, like this, this vacuum that's, that's come to exist and the church has become less relevant culturally than ever. But Christianity is like all of a sudden really, really relevant. Um, I'm, I'm so that was a very long setup as like my big picture perspective of the last few decades to ask you, where do you see Christianity in the culture today? What are, what are the various, what's going on with that? Am I right to see that there's like a resurgence in interest, but it's sort of separate from the old institutional church?
1: Well, we can bow our heads and close our eyes and make a decision right now. If you're ready, (laughs) you know, that's the, you said you're hungering to return to the church, right?
0: Well, I I don't, I don't think that I, I wouldn't say that I've like left the church or left Christianity. What I mean is like, a a you know um sunday service or a local service that like like i you know i'll take my my kids and my family we've gone through phases where we'll go and whatever but there's there's not a lot of meat and substance in the majority of churches that i have attended um you know and i've and i've experimented not a lot of meat and substance with any kind of human gathering is there really you know yeah absolutely absolutely but but and i guess so- the question is do, do you see like a an attempt, uh, an interest in Christianity that's that seems to be coming from places other than the church itself.
1: Right. And that's because Jesus is found outside the camp in his own religion, right? So he's, right. he's expelled outside the camp, and therefore you'll always find Jesus outside the camp of whatever time you're in. But that doesn't mean that the church should, I, I don't take a position, you know, there's all these folks, and I try to understand people wherever they're from. So I have friends who are Catholic, and I have friends who are Orthodox, I have friends who are Protestant, Mennonite you know, house church. And and look, I'm not trying to be some kind of milk toast. you know, who knows what's right. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say, look, let's try to get people to focus on, you know, encountering Jesus and what he's doing in history. It's not, see, for me, when you say encountering Jesus, that's loaded with all this Christian ink stuff. I get it, right? You're like, oh gosh, you got a new book to say, you know, encounter Jesus in a fresh new way. It's not, that's the objective. of jesus jesus is church declining in this moment it doesn't mean that that's forever you know it doesn't mean that that's going to be the whole final story but jesus is always going to be found outside the camp of whatever you know the dominant conventional frame of what something is you know and that's not just for the church by the way You see, Jesus was always getting us to challenge the sacred cows of knowledge for all kinds of ways of thinking, like science, you know? It would be easy if I just kept it in politics and church, but I don't like going there because once you see the way Jesus sees things, you are more suspicious of the epistemological foundations of all kinds of knowledge, including economics and Physics and it's not that you just say everything's like a conspiracy. No, 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 no. We're talking about mimetic groupthink. We're talking about the way human beings are wired. We are wired, it's not, it's groupthink doesn't do it justice. Uh, it's group being. You know, we are possessed by group uh identity to the point. That we are not aware of it. We we don't want to recognize how much of what we do is just patterned off of the desires of our neighbors, including in prestigious fields like science, medical information, physics. These things, we end up creating more social science phenomenon than we actually do create real hard objective science. You know, Thomas Kuhn talked about paradigm shift cycle. The idea was that, you know, you had these reigning paradigms of knowledge, and over time, enough anomalies would build up, and it would overtake and overthrow the, the reigning paradigm of a particular field with a kind of cataclysmic, apocalyptic end to that knowledge, mm-hmm. right? But what happens with the state, the state introduces this monopoly of force, which retards that paradigm shift from happening. Because they, they they finance everything, and they finance all science. They finance nutrition science. We now know the food pyramid is a joke. They've been getting us to eat tons and tons of seed oils and grains and sugar, and we're realizing that single-payer nutrition science broke our bodies, so single-payer health care is not going to fix what single-payer nutrition destroyed. But we don't have this ability to step outside of these fields of knowledge very well, because we are mimetic. We, we fall in line with the white coat. It's the priestly garb. You know, it's like, I trust you for my plumbing. I trust you for my theology. You've got a lab coat. The, the TV says you're an expert. I trust you for my medicine. I trust this guy for my, whether I should eat, uh, you know, if I should eat seed oils or not. Instead of learning to be more um, self-aware and discerning of what's presented as this is established science. Don't question it. Don't challenge it we're afraid to do that because we don't want to be alienated. We don't want to be on a podcast where, oh my goodness, did you see David? He challenged the food pyramid. Oh, he may not be invited to the next cocktail party. Oh, he might be poor one day if he does that. You know, we have so much social concern for what we say that we lack the courage to challenge these sacred cows all around us. And that includes the church, you see. And so, you know, Jesus helps us move forward in every field that we want to have achievement in. You know, we've had the war on cancer since Nixon. Did we solve it? No, because we don't think like Jesus. Jesus challenged the sacred cows of his time. He challenged the mythologies of his time. He deconstructed them. He said, you say this leper is sick because God hates him. And I say, no, he's not sick for that. He's loved by God. And when you do that, you're rewiring all the hierarchies, you're rewiring all the the groupthink, you know, tribalisms that you see in your life, and you're bringing people back to the human person, back to themselves, to be able to understand that so much of what you think you know is actually mimetic hive mind, uh, you know, concealment of the truth, because that's what humans do. That's how we make sense of the world.
0: Let, let yeah. I want to. So this is the meat of it. This is what I really want to dive into with you. The you know you you mentioned mimetic, um, you know the the mimetic desire, and that's that's right out of Rene Girard. And this is what got me intrigued by you. I, I don't think I've encountered anyone. Now I've read Girard a couple of his books. Um, they're pretty they're pretty challenging to get into. I think like like almost any French thinker, with the exception of Frederick Bastiat, it's like you have to get into a groove where you are like, you, you like warm up to it. And then you can sort of, because it's very, um, it can feel a little bit all over the place or almost contradictory at times because it's, it's a very different approach. He takes this kind of through the lens of literature, this sociological approach to uncovering these mechanisms at work in culture, particularly the, the mimetic desire and scapegoating mechanism. And I haven't heard anyone else as much as you um, point out, I think you call it like the the christ hauntedness of culture or of um social justice culture the the extent to which the the christian message what christ was about the idea of concern for the victim how just how radical a departure that was from all of human history And how we take that for granted, it's easy for us to kind of assume that like the underdog, the victim, the poor person, the handicapped person, cultures have always cared about them and wanted to take care of them. And that's really not the case. This is a really radical and really new thing. That's very much a Christian thing. And yet it's it's sort of it's the animating um, thing behind pretty much all cultural and political movements. But when it's divorced from kind of the Christian context, it can do some really interesting things. And I've seen you sort of analyze that a lot. So first, just give like a, a your summary version of what is Rene Girard's work all about in terms of the you know victims, mimetic desire, scapegoating. I know that's a lot, but if you sort of could summarize what he brings to the table in terms of understanding culture and understanding particularly the way that the Christian worldview plays out in culture.
1: So he... he- Rene Girard was a, a professor, uh, an anthropologist. He trained as a historian originally, and then he, he was most famous for teaching at Stanford University. Uh, his most famous student that most people would know, especially in a podcast world, would be Peter Thiel, who credits him as kind of giving him a theoretical foundation, which informed a lot of his investment choices, you know, like uh, being first at Facebook as an investor in Facebook and other companies that have been contrarian bets. And it, it's it's a it's a... Um, throwback to a time in which like Darwin, where you had grand unified theories of the world, you know, those are not very popular. They weren't popular when Girard was coming up uh, because, you know, you're told to, you know, again, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of epistemological foundation. You're told in this paradigm, if you're going to be a social scientist or a, a professor of literature, as he started out as you need to deconstruct the text You know, you need to look at the uniqueness of things, not the similar patterns of all these different works of literature that Girard was studying and and teaching his students. He started seeing there was patterns in all the great works of Western literature, the great novels had a triangular pattern of desire, which is the idea, and this is where my, my, my friends in libertarianism, everybody gets something to be critiqued in this, you know, so the left gets a critique, the right gets a critique, and libertarians get a critique too, which is why I don't. I've never really described myself as a libertarian. I'm friends with libertarians. I, I share a lot of similar views on some things, but I have a lot of foundational, uh, you know, issues with the, the the core assumptions underneath the philosophy of what's called libertarianism. But um, uh, the point is, is that human beings are uh, mimetic. We desire what our neighbors desire. You know, we desire. We copy, not just monkey see, monkey do. rote stuff like. You stick your tongue and you stick your tongue back at me. We do that, but we also go beyond that. We desire what we perceive them desiring, what they want to acquire, whether it's a a relationship, a mate, you know, a property, an object, a a fancy new car, a nice home, a better zip code, a better dialect, a better use of language. You know, you got to get woke. You got to use the proper language. They're constantly being updated with new words all the time. And that's a way of testing whether you're in their tribe or not, because there's a constant updating of holiness codes with speech codes. And if you're not constantly updating your language of where it's moving, ah, we found you. You're an imposter. Get out. You're almost not on the, the high class uh, the,
0: like you thought. You know, you I mean? could almost capture that in that in a single phrase, which is really, really popular right now of being on the right side of history. That's almost right. a, that's almost a expression of a type of mimetic desire. Like, this is where I perceive everyone else believes we ought to go and are going. So therefore I need to be perceived as also wanting to go there and going there. Like, you know,
1: and even, and even the idea of there being a right side of history as a Christian thing, hmm. because you know, the pagan world had the cyclical nature, the eternal return as Nietzsche called it, you know, the eternal return, a cyclical pattern, the seasons change and, you and there's a birth, and there's a death, and there's a time for sacrifice. There's a time for this, and there's no real logic or direction that history is going. Christianity introduces the notion that history is going somewhere, and that dominates the left. The left is all about, we're moving somewhere. They don't know where. They think they know, but they're moving somewhere. History has a and they're trying to go somewhere with it, and... Uh, they're just—they're basically being dragged into Christianity's zeitgeist, moving it along through history, and they think they're doing something that's different from Christianity, but it's not. It's just you're again swimming in the fishbowl of Christianity. But what Gerard tri- said about a feeling. triangle.
0: Go ahead. You said something about a triangle with Gerard. Yeah, the triangular
1: desire. It's the triangle- idea that you okay. you desire what your neighbor has. Oh, got because it. Because. You at, you ultimately, Gerard says, is you have an you have an existential desire for the being of your neighbor. You hmm. see what I mean? That you you look at an object and you say, "Hey, I want it," but what you really want is to be one with your neighbor. You want to feel complete. You want to feel unity. You want to feel that cathartic release of 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 at you know what they used to call atonement or at one or something. You know, you're coming united together, and that happens. Because people say, hey, if I can have that, I'll have some of that special juju energy that my friend has. That's what, you know... Uh, I was just attending Cpac for the first time. Anybody who goes to a convention of any type, they're trying to fill one with their neighbor. They want to be a part of the special sauce. They 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 go to a Steve Jobs lecture back when he was alive and they want to get what is it about him, you know? Can I can I mimic him and get what he has? That special touch or maybe it's Elon Musk, you know? There's just something about him. How does he have 15 corporations and they're all worth all these amazing amounts of money and it's so innovative. How does he do it? How can I be like that? And then so you copy maybe the, maybe their hairstyle, maybe their way of talking, maybe their politics, maybe the, the kind of relationships that they have, maybe their business ideas. Oh, Elon has an electrical car company. Maybe I need to create one. It won't be Tesla, it'll be Nicola, right? So, <laughs> so you know so you come up with all these different ways of, hey, I can do that too. I can be like that. But ultimately, you want to be one with your neighbor because human beings are not islands unto ourselves. We are interdividually connected. That's a, a word that came around with Gerard's conversations. This idea that again kind of critiques the heart of somewhat of libertarian philosophy that we're almost like these enlightened, you know, enlightenment models of complete human beings that all of our desires are from the fount of our hearts. Right. But we, we know that's not true. You know, we know that, we, you know, you may want a really particular car, but when you get that car, it doesn't necessarily satisfy you. There's always something like I lack something, you know, and you look at someone who may be a rival at work and you're like, well, they're not as talented as me, or they're not as successful as me, but look how like free they are. They're just free, they're free spirited. I wish I could just have that. And so you kind of magnetically are drawn to people that you're even in conflict with. And what Gerard's theory, mimetic theory, says, is that as you draw towards someone who you admire, uh, and you may not tell yourself you admire them, you know, you may tell nah, this guy, this is a, this person's crazy. I, I'm way more put together than that. But there's something that you just, ah, I wish I could be like that. I've got X, Y, and Z better than them, but they've got A and B a little better. Can I do that? And this is a feeling. Sometimes we're aware of it. Sometimes it just feels that way, and it draws us towards modeling our life after the things that they seem to have or want, right? And that's where we get into conflict, because when you come in close contact with someone, uh, you know, the old saying, um, the grass is greener on the other side. When you get closer to that other hill, you get closer it starts to cause conflict, you know, because you see them kind of imitating, you know, you're you're getting closer to them. And as you get closer to them, you see the blemishes of their life. You see the the imperfections of them and you held them up in high esteem. You almost held them like an idol, but as you get closer to them, you're like, Oh, but they did that. And they're annoying here and they're bad. And it starts to kind of repel you. Wait, wait a second. I can do better than them. That, that whole saying of don't meet your idols. They'll disappoint Mm -hmm. you. That's mimetic. You know, I can do better than that. I thought this guy was going to be a superstar. I thought he was going to be the best pastor of all time or the best scientist. And then I get close to him and they're just a, what a disappointment. I'll beat them. I'll, 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 I'll do what needs to be done. It's my time. That that's mimetic desire. You know, that's why the guy that killed uh, the Beatles guy, what's his name? Uh, uh,
0: Sirhan Sirhan. Oh, no, that was
1: the Robert Kennedy guy. That oh yeah.
0: Him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, assassination
1: With the, uh, john lennon's killer right he said i killed him because i wanted to be him you know he wanted to be him and that stalker energy of these creepers that that try to stalk celebrities they want to be that they want to want to be one with that energy that that magnetism that they see
0: and and this is a pattern that gerard recognizes throughout history and all these great stories and things yeah
1: And ultimately, he concluded basically—I'm giving you the cheat sheet version of Gerard—he concluded that the the reason why these Western novels were so uniquely revelatory um, about the nature of human desire and conflict and and relationship and scandal was because they were baked in Christian uh, understanding, that the Bible had been revealing these mechanisms. You know, the Bible says, thou shalt not covet. But it doesn't just say, thou shalt not covet. It says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbors this, that, this, that, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So the emphasis is on the neighbor. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor is what's really going on. And you look at the first story in the Bible with Cain and Abel, and Cain is jealous of Abel. He desires the status that Abel has in relationship to the ultimate good, right? And so he kills his brother uh, in envy, uh, that mimetic desire trying to defeat and supplant the other, the rival. Uh, and then what does that turn into? It becomes the founding moment of civilization, the Bible says, that on the death of when Cain kills Abel, on that moment, he, he creates the first city. That's a symbol of what happened to uh, humanity that allowed human cities and politics and governments and, and culture to form, the sacrifice of one on the death of someone becomes the founding moment of a new order or a new city or a new bridge.
0: And in so fact- Is that, is see- that how the, the idea of mimetic desire connects to the idea of the scapegoat in Girard?
1: Right, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good segue to the scapegoat because that's, you know, when you, I wrote an article for uh, Fee, I don't know if you ever saw it a few years ago called The, uh, the State is the Religion of the Hidden Corpse. That's a heck of a, of a conversation starter at a party. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, you, Hey, you know, at, at the same time, you know, we're all fascinated by this stuff. Why do you think that the, um, you know, the, the whole, uh, criminal justice genre, uh, is so popular on Netflix, you know, yeah. I actually have a hard time watching this stuff. That stuff bothers me when they're like, and then they found her fingernails under her fingernails and they're like, showing, I'm like, Ooh, you know, I, it freaks me out because we all have death anxiety and I just, I haven't come to turn, you know, it, it bothers me. It gets me sad, you know, when I look at it, but they're really popular because we're obsessed with understanding human violence and human nature. And so Gerard's basically, here's a shout out for folks who are like, man, this is kind of weird and different Gerard's theory. But if you like criminal justice genre, you know, who killed this and serial killer st- killer stuff uh, on Netflix and all these other programs, then think of Gerard as like a detective of history and, and who hid the, you know, he's going to help us uncover the bodies of human history and government itself so this gives you a little little teaser to want to dive in more but basically what gerard's theory is all about is that you know uh, at the heart of human civilization if we are so mimetic we copy so when you hear the word mimetic just say copy we're copycats you know uh, it, when we copy so much of what we do and what we model for one another, that can, off, that can often turn into a negative reciprocal feedback loop. You know, if I came to you at a, at a speaking event or and, and you reached out your hand to shake my hand and I pulled my hand back, you would kind of not, what are you doing? Who, who do you think you are? you just making me look bad in front of my friends here. I just did this wonderful speech. And this is how you treat me. What's your problem? You got a problem? So you would give me its indication usually that you disapprove of what I did, but you saw it and, you know, you're going to get and see. I would see that, that gesture that you would do as confirmation that I was right to not give you a handshake because you are a jerk. See, I, 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 I confirm myself that yeah, you're, 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 you are the guy that doesn't deserve what I want to, you know, kindness or compassion. And that little stuff starts rivalry. It starts obsession with the other. Right. And, um, And and so, Gerard said there's external mediators and internal mediators. External mediators are figures that you can imitate that are kind of above your uh, station in life. It could be a character. You know, you have Don Quixote. He imitates the characters of the King Arthur legends, right? He can't come into contact with them, so he has no ability of turning into a rival of them. But you can be a rival of the guy that you work with or a spouse or your son, you know, those are closer in proximity where you can have rivalry, you can have conflict. And by the way, that's why Donald Trump ticked people off with his tweeting, because he went from an external mediator, being a president who's transcendent of the state, and then he's over there misspelling stuff and bashing celebrities at three in the morning on the toilet on Twitter, and it took it more closer to an internal mediator of desire, in which the average joe who's frustrated in life could get a little shot at you know like maybe he'll see my tweet if i tweet it real fast i hate you you die you die you know what i mean and so it had this context where they felt (laughs) like they could get to him like that sacred aura of the state was getting a little profane (laughs) and they don't interpret it that way they feel that way and the way they rationalize it is he's a monster he's 45 he's not a human he's just a number he's orange man you know he's nazi why is nazi because Indiana Jones made the Nazis the villain. So therefore, what is the biggest villain of my childhood? Nazi, therefore he Nazi. It's very, very, very rote kind of primitive stuff that we're falling into. And of course his team does it mimetically back at the other team, you know? So it, it's a reciprocation thing, reciprocal thing. So anyways, back to the, the uh, snowballing of conflict that human beings fall into. Now the question is, and I'm gonna ask you this, if we are unlike human, or if we're unlike animals, Because the animals, when you have two wolves fight and the weaker wolf loses, he submits the neck to the alpha wolf to take. And they usually don't take it. They're usually, all right, we're good. I'm the leader. You lost. Get behind. You'll get a little bit of the scraps tonight if we get an animal. You know what I mean? It's a very simple dominant submission mechanism. But humans aren't like that. We go on and on and on. In fact, going back to that Bible story, which teaches us about mankind, you know, Cain kills Abel. And then he looks for a sign so that he doesn't get revenge on him, that people don't try to kill him. And eventually it spirals out. And it's like, you get to that guy, Lamech, who symbolically says, you know, if you kill me, you know, 70 people are going to die. You know what I mean? And so it's, it's it's spiraled way out of control now. You know what I mean? It wasn't, that's why when the Bible says, uh, you know, um, take, you know, a, a eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, we look at that with Christian uh, deconstruction. Thousands of years later, we're like, "Ooh, that's primitive. That's that's violent. That's this is ugly Bible stuff." And it's like, no, that was a limitation to the reciprocal, out of control. You take my eye, I take your head off. You know. And then your friends, who saw you saw me take your head off, want to kill my whole neighborhood. And then whoever left of that wants to kill my, your whole tribe. And that's called genocide. That's called intergenerational conflict, right? And that's the heart of of what we see in human history and even prehistory, right? So the question is, and my question for you is, how could we have survived if we don't have a dominance and submission mechanism to halt violence from going out of control? You know, if we are super mimetic to the point where we don't stop, we have blood feuds, bad blood, Rome, you know romeo and juliet yeah how did we how are we still here that's my question for you
0: i mean yeah, so, think about that so the answer that uh, i think i come across in gerard and that is very compelling is you have to find you have to find someone to sort of collectively heap that onto someone who everybody can say this person or this thing this is the problem they're, they're the ones that need to be punished. And you have this scapegoating mechanism that allows for that catharsis. It allows a, a, a resolving of those conflicts because you can't go on indefinitely saying, you know, you're wrong, you're wrong. You're, we have to find someone to say they are the ones to blame. They are the cause of these troubles. You know, it's the witch burning or whatever it is. And we have to go and and now sort of ritualistically almost enact this, process of sort of, you know, meeting out vengeance on them so that we can all dissolve these, these conflicts.
1: And, and the scapegoat, you're right. And the scapegoat doesn't have to be purely innocent. They can be, and oftentimes are, they're kind of arbitrary. In fact, some of the scapegoats are just a participant in a rivalry, you know? And so this is where it's very, it's very tangible for us to see this. Uh, You know, we know the saying history is written by the winners. And oftentimes the scapegoats are the monsters that were defeated by one side of a rivalry, right? That's what Cain and Abel, right? But see, what the Bible does is it takes the side, it takes the camera and points it at Abel's dead body. This is revelation. This is a revolutionary thing. And we're so baked in it that we're like brats. We don't understand, you know, how revelatory this is how breakthrough, how so progressive. It's more progressive than anything that's called progressive today. Because in that time, in that tribe, in that culture, to be able to take the camera and say, no, we're not going to go with the winner's feud and, and, and zero in on Cain. Because if we heard it from Cain's perspective, Abel would have turned out to be a trickster. He would have been a Grendel like troll like Beowulf had to defeat. And he had to defeat this monster to protect the whole world from falling apart into chaos. Yeah, but we don't, The Bible doesn't stay there. That's how all mythology does. The Bible says, hey, something happened here. Let's zoom in the camera of history onto the victim. Let's stay there. And what does the Bible say? Abel's blood cries out for vengeance. What the heck do we care about Abel's perspective in any other myth? And every other myth, you know, the gods, and we know that, we, and here's the tell that the gods are oftentimes victims or people who would be easily killed. Because they have a disfigurement or they have a handicap. They might have a twisted leg, a twisted gait. They might be a cyclops. Even today in some uh, more, you know, uh, sacrificial communities. That you know, when they have a a goat or something born with one eye, they parade it around the town as a sign of the gods or something. You know, so we can imagine what would happen.
0: You know, it's funny even even the phrase uh, "witch hunt." If you say it today, everybody sort of assumes this is unfair and unjust, and there are people being victimized because other people want to blame them. Outside of that kind of. Christian context of of concern for the victim and recognition that the scapegoat may be innocent uh, sometimes um, or not deserving. It's like in the, in the rest of history, it's like, no, it almost doesn't even matter if they're innocent or guilty, right? Like practices of human sacrifice. It works functionally. If we take this person and kill them, uh, it creates peace or it creates prosperity or it makes rainfall or whatever the beliefs are. Look, we cleared up the problem who cares about them, right? This is about, you know, the, the victors, as you said. And and I think the Christianity really brings that home with the story of Christ himself in establishing in no uncertain terms, this person is 100% innocent, is as innocent as any person could ever be is, is perfect, right? Which is the, the whole point. And is scapegoated. So you can never find a reason to be like he had it coming, right? And it forces you to, to look at the victim with compassion to, to take on the understanding that like, this is dangerous, this victim, you know, deserves, uh, you know, the, the, deserves sort of the same level of dignity and respect and, and justice uh, as everyone else. And I, I think that is sort of taken for granted. We, we have that baked into our culture, but that is a very Christian idea. So I'd, I'd love to hear from you what happens to that idea, concern for the victim, in the absence of grounding in, let's say, the Christian framework?
1: Well, again, to, to understand the, the mechanisms, the, the scapegoat mechanism is, is so important. This, this is the second piece of Girard's work. His first was mimetic theory, which encompasses the scapegoat mechanism, but it was more about the inter- individual, uh you know, individual relationships and how those can spiral. The second piece is the scapegoat mechanism which you alluded to and and how that works and by the way it's not just um the the idea of of the words we so many of the words we have have changed like think about sacrifice when you think of sacrifice in today's connotation of the word in the west what do you think of
0: like you know not not spending money on myself or something self-sacrifice
1: right like you think of like Um, like the sacrifice our soldiers make that they put on the boots and they put on the equipment and they, they run into the, into the fire that we, the others don't or uh, the sacrifice of, of, uh, you know, giving up uh, your position for somebody else. Right. So it's self-sacrifice. This is from Christ. The, The ancient world notion of sacrifice was sacrifice of another. So what Jesus does is he takes this concept that he's basically saying, okay, humans, and again, we don't even have to invoke the theological aspect of Jesus here just to make the, the case here. It's very clear. But human beings, and I always tell people, they're like, look, if you have a problem with Jesus being God, that's okay. I mean, that's fine if you need to deal with that. But if he's if he's purely a man, it's even more miraculous <laughs> in some sense that, that he got so much of this right. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> Pretty extraordinary, you know be so prescient about everything and then to create a story into the human species that is infecting the whole world as we speak and creating exactly the results that he predicted would happen. Mm-hmm. That's pretty incredible. So if he's just a human, he's the he's the greatest man of all time and you should study every aspect of his life and you should want to pattern your whole life off of this man because this dude this guy predicted everything and he and he did it and he said he was going to do it and then he does it. You know, this is the you know you can't the guy you want to study you know people want to study michael jordan tiger woods and and uh steve jobs but anyways they should study jesus maybe they they'll get some of that that understanding of what what the whole point of life is and what we're trying to do what's happening in world history but um so to, how, how do you explain the problem of 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 like you were saying the the idea that christianity opens up this concern for victims but yet we take that into a crazy violent way right um, you know, that's why we go to war now. We have to sell each other on going to war in the name of victims, right? We go into Desert Storm. Why? Because we're told by a lying press that uh, Saddam Hussein was ripping babies out of incubators. That was, an, that was a state, from what I understand, that was, not in, that was incorrect. Um, you know, we are told we have to go to Iraq because, uh, you know, they need democracy and they're oppressive to women you know, and we got to give them democracy. They have the right to vote. They need to have the right to vote. Uh, we go into Afghanistan for similar things, not just because we were attacked, but also, hey, we're going to stick around and teach these guys how to be voters, you know? Eventually, in a few years, we'll teach them how to have, you know, trans wrestling matches. You know what I mean? That, that, that'll be just in a couple months, you know? <laughs> the stupidity, the hubris of our society is, is insane here. The arrogance, the, the chauvinistic, Western chauvinistic imperialist decadence of the leftist frame of our culture is unbelievable. You want to talk about privilege? There's nothing more imperialistically Western chauvinistic than the obsession with trying to force our concern for victims around the whole world, right? And everything we do that's violent is now wrapped in the language of protecting victims, even the drug war, right? We protect victims, people who are, who are addicted to uh, drugs, and we say we must protect them from themselves. Therefore, we will fight to the ever never end. And you'll say, but you know you're not going to end it. You can't end the drug war. And they'll say, yeah, we can't end it, but we must always fight against it because how how could we ever allow these wicked drug lords to predate people and get them hooked on drugs that victimize themselves eternally with addiction, or or the addiction or, or the or the victims of the children. Uh, the victims of the attic, like the kids and the people. And the, and there are real victims here. There are real victims here. But the whole point is all the violence that we do, like when we put a human being and put them in a prison cage, uh, for, uh, vi- for nonviolent choices, taking of substance, making them have an altered state that is really, uh, a perpetuation of the scapegoat mechanism, but done so in the name of victims, in the name of concern and care for our neighbor.
0: Yeah, so it's it's the culturally we've been so the, the idea of concern for victims has has so permeated that you have to wrap everything in a narrative of this is really for the victims or it won't fly. Whereas once upon a time you could say we're going to go conquer this country because we're the greatest and we're going to steal their stuff and because we're winners. Um, you can't say that now you have to wrap it in the, in the idea. It has to be something about saving the least of these, right. Helping victims in some kind. Um, and that's, and that's interesting because it's there, there's, there's a beauty in that, right? Like the mere fact that you have to placate that means that that's an important thing that's permeated our consciousness. And that's good, right? That's a good thing that we care about victims. right? Um, but it's, it's interesting to see how concern for victims can, can almost get to become worship of victims uh, can also almost turn into a, uh, its own form of religion. Um, And, you know, I mean, and you see this with sort of the like victim one-upsmanship, right? The victim Olympics of like, who is the most oppressed and who is the least privileged? They're the only ones that, you know, should be, able to speak or write an article on medium or something like this, there's almost this kind of like, and you get self-flagellation of people who aren't victims. I'm privileged and I must apologize for that. And I must write, there's this kind of ritualized religion around victimhood itself. How would you contrast what is, what is the proper way to have concern for victims without Either using it as a tool to deceive people, like "Oh yeah, we got to go commit violence to help the victims," or turning it into its own sort of religion that's going to end in like a of an arms race of who can be the most victimy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is very ca- counterproductive. What's the proper way? Because that's that's a good desire that comes from Christianity. How do you how do you channel that in a way that you would say is healthy?
1: Well, you have you you have to have. Uh, um you know human beings are depend so you have human beings are dependent on role models okay so this is the concrete way that we stop this problem from going into the dangerous place it's going is that we have to have role models like jesus as an external mediator not an internal mediator mm. who we can imitate the way he treats his neighbors and then if we start imitating jesus the right way and actually do it then we will create a contagion of positive mimetic desire in which communities will mimetically transform the whole world. And it doesn't take a majority vote or anything. It's just, it's a, it's a wildfire of cultural renaissance that is available to us at any time. But we don't want to do it because we always believe, including Christians, that if we fully follow Jesus, when he says, take up, our, take up your cross and follow me, that we'll literally get crucified. And there's a good chance you could get crucified if you follow Jesus. And so we're, fr- we're afraid of that. And that's where I get back to the objectification of Christ, is that we want some of him, but we don't want to fully imitate him. Because if we fully imitate him, we're afraid it'll hurt us really bad. And I'm not calling for actual pacifism. I, I believe there's a place for self-defense, and we could get into that at another time perhaps. But you know I, I do believe that if we would actually imitate Jesus' nonviolence, which at the simple level just means non-aggression and non-vengeance, you don't initiate. So the libertarian stuff gets the nap part, right? But they don't go the next level. It's not just non-aggression. It's also non-vengeance, you know, in your heart and in your actions. You know, and uh, if, if someone comes into your house and, God forbid, kills a loved one, you know, and then you go to their neighborhood and you kill their loved ones, that's vengeance, right? And that doesn't solve anything. But having them, if they were intent to kill, you know, If they killed someone, then they need to be separated from society in some way. And that's okay. That's why we have a prison or something like that, to separate them away from society, that you can't go along and just kill anybody you want, and everybody's going to say, all right, we'll pray for you and have at it, have another time. No, we have to protect victims. So there's a place for self-defense. But that's what we need. We need role models like Jesus who can ground us into the proper way of dealing with victims. Right, and that ultimately leads us not to individualism, but personhood. That's what I call the personhood revolution of Jesus, which is the idea of loving our neighbors as ourselves. And that means first you have to love yourself. How can you love your neighbor if you don't have a proper love of yourself? If you don't love yourself, you'll do this disgusting narcissistic self-flagellation. Oh, I hate myself because I'm white, and oh, this this is pathetic. It's fake. It's all garbage. We all know it's garbage. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a toxic thing. That's toxic whiteness. To say, oh, I'm scared of, oh, I'm a white person, I have to. No, you are loved because you are made in the image of God. That's what Jesus tells you. You see, if you have a problem with the idea of a God, just think about what Jesus is saying in a, word, in a way that you understand. You are loved because you're a human being. Your human being personhood is sacred. It's not to be messed with. You are not to be a father. For sacrificial violence. You're not to be fodder for empire. You're not to be treated in an undignified way. And that's why I'm trying to move folks in the liberty movement away from enlightenment views about rights and more about what's right and wrong. So the caricature of libertarianism is, I have a right to have a AR-15 and fire it off into the air on the edge of my prop line, up in the air. <laughs> And I can have, you know, be high on heroin and I can, it's my property. It's my rights. It's me, me, me. I don't have to wear a seatbelt. Me, 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 me. Now I know that's a caricature that people make, but there's an element, you know, how they always say libertarians don't have an aesthetic. That's because that's not where Christ is moving the world. Christ is the best aesthetic are the ones that the best aesthetic is that which imitates Christ's um, expulsion story. Right. And so when you when you really lean into that it's not about my right to have no seatbelt on and shoot a ar-15 on the edge of my property line in the air as long as the bullet doesn't fall in your line i can do whatever i want it's my freedom as opposed to well how should i treat my neighbor
0: yeah you know know, it's funny if my
1: neighbor has a gun i'm scared of right maybe you don't have a right to own a gun maybe owning a gun is a gift from god but maybe Maybe I don't have a right in the sense of moral duty to barge into my neighbor's house and take his gun away because I'm scared that he could use it one day in a violent way. You see how I framed it from me to you to to the other? That's the way we have to go.
0: It's interesting, you know, having been around um, kind of libertarians for a long time and sort of professional libertarians, people that work at sort of libertarian organizations and things. I always found a very interesting um, phenomenon where, to me, libertarianism is, is a very, very small sliver of, uh, it's a very narrow um, body of thought. It's It's restricted entirely to the question of what is the proper role of the state, the relationship between law and an individual human being. That's it. It doesn't ask what is a human's purpose in life? What is the proper relationship between one human and another or humans in a society? It's just about the role of violence, institutionalized violence. But I think a lot of libertarians, if they don't have something else to latch onto, they take that political philosophy and they attempt to turn it into a life philosophy and they attempt to have it answer all questions for them in life. And it's really just a very narrow subset and it's a really excellent body of thought on that subset on questions of the state you know violence from the state and when when is that either uh, justified or efficient and etc but in terms of how to live it, it doesn't it's not an instruction manual it's not a life philosophy and, and that's where I think it gets pretty um, strange and, and uncomfortable and a lot of conflict arises when people look at it to become more than that and I think that's what's interesting about your work is and again you know, cause, because I came to my political beliefs because of my religious beliefs and my sort of philosophical journey. Um, I haven't, I haven't really, you know, ever looked at my political beliefs as a guidebook for the rest of my life. Right. It's just the extension of my beliefs about life and morality in general. How does that play out in the political realm? Well, it plays out in the political realm through nonviolence, essentially. Um, but I think it's, it's trouble, so it's problematic if you go the other direction, right? If you say, here's my political beliefs, now how can they tell me how to apply everything else in the rest of my life?
1: And libertarianism and other ideologies are all popping up because they're all basically like Christian heresies. See, we have to understand the way the world actually is, the way much of history knew it to be. There is no distinction between society, culture, state. You know all these things are one they didn't ha- you know religion these are all like synonyms for each other you know they didn't have this is you know the idea of a secular space was something that christianity introduced the idea you could have a secular space away from the priestly the priesthood you know and uh, this is so if you're trying to say well i've got a secular ideology you're still playing in the framework that christians provided for you intellectually and culturally that you've now subsumed and you don't understand where it came from so So all of what we're baked in in the West, whether you like it or not, it's all forms of Christianity. So uh, McWokeism, you know, the the SJW stuff, that's a a Christian heresy. Uh, The libertarianism is a kind of Christian deviation. These are all, but it doesn't make them bad when I say heresy. I know that's a scary word, but I'm just saying it's mutations. Let's put it that way. Mutations that are kind of taking aspects of what Jesus introduced in the Judeo-Christian with him the Judeo-Christian tradition with him, uh, what that introduced into our world. And, and so we're, we're glomming on to different pieces of it, you know, uh, because the right, the right is very big about preserving the metaphysics of Christianity, you know, and they're very good about conser- preserving the, um, the restraints on human desire that Christianity rightfully gets us to think about because it's like, well, we're not islands unto ourselves. You know, we covet and we do things, and we we lust after things and objects and and, and things, and so we don't want to be totally just all about the individual, the individual, the individual, because that's not true. That's that's a lie. The individual is dependent on the human society around them for their whole sense of self. That's why humans that get abandoned at a young age in the wild they they, they call them feral children. Some of those are legends, but. Some of that's real and they never are able to if they're if they're exposed away from humans for a certain length of time at a certain young age, it's very hard to ever get them to learn uh, language to a certain degree or to develop at a certain degree because the human baby is so dependent on people around them to transmit how they should smile, how they should feel, how they should deal with conflict, how they should deal with money, how they should deal with Gender relationships, all this stuff is so transmitted interdividually. And, and and libertarianism as a philosophy doesn't have anything to really deal with that. And so it's it, you're getting the cart before the horse when you take that and you try to backfill it into something that Christianity provides. I ultimately believe that if Christianity had been, if Christians had been properly engaging the anthropology of the texts, libertarianism and all these things wouldn't have sprouted up in the first place. They mm. sprout up. Because the soil of church teaching was deficient. It's just like, you know, when you have soil today that's deficient in minerals, and therefore you end up taking supplements because your vegetables and stuff don't have the the proper nutrition they used to have in the 1920s or whatever. So you take these supplements. Well, that's kind of what libertarianism and these things are. They're like supplements because the soil of our Christian approach, the church approach, is a little deficient on understanding exactly what Jesus was up to and how it informs the headlines and world events of our time. So, so yes, the, the biggest concern that Gerard had was, uh, you know, what he called hyper-Christianity, uh, which is what the vi- he called it victimism, which is what we call the leftist concern for victims, where, you know, the right is basically uh scapegoat classic. They want to scapegoat the classic way and that's why they tend to be more like hey do whatever the police says and that's it you know and so if there's a conflict between a policeman and a citizen they tend to on the juries take the side of the police you know or hey don't you question that war that's a sacred effort of our of our of our soldiers if you question the war the right will say oftentimes you're demeaning the sacrifice of the soldiers this is very classical scapegoating logic which is pagan. They just put metaphysical Christian claims on top of it like a superficial dressing to try to, you know, to make it more appealing to their conscience. The left, so the right takes the metaphysics of Christianity and tries to glue it onto classical scapegoating hierarchy on average. I'm being general here. The left tends to be more about, all right, I don't really care about the metaphysics of Christianity. I'm more about the social justice concern, the aesthetic feeling the emotional impetus that christianity and judeo-christianity brings into our culture and so they're all about you know concern for the other and concern for the victim and that's why you remember we were talking about uh, how the bible deconstructs mythology well that's the same thing going on with the leftist uh, movie making and cinema and art right it's all about taking the other the the stranger. And, and telling the story from their perspective, you know. And so that's where you get this slow humanization. And, and there's good things with that. You see, there's good things with liberal, what you know, liberal or left-wing sensibility art and movie making. There's good things that come about. They break barriers between racial discrimination with that, right? We see, the, left, the leftist mind goes into there and says, why are you scapegoating the African-American? They were doing ritual sacrifice in America just a few decades ago. And the left is right and pure and righteous to do this, to tell us, to remember that, that that doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, they don't have the the grounding of Christianity oftentimes to be able to take it back and make it understandable that this is a human proclivity, not something that you can quarantine into one race or one religion or, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. what the left does is they tend to scapegoat the messenger, which is as we see this, sca- when Jesus text, I call it the gospel technology. The Bible is like a, it's a technology that allows us to see things, and as the gospel technology infects the world slowly through the ages, which the Bible said it will do, like yeast in a loaf, it's a slow process. It undermines sacrificial logic. It undermines the stories that cultures tell themselves to justify might makes right, to justify what the Bible says Caiaphas said when he led the charge to kill Jesus, which is that it is better that one man die than the whole nation perish. So the Bible it deconstructs that slowly but surely. And that's why modernists are always saying, well, look at you, David. How could you ever praise the church? Look at all the burnings, all the witch burnings, all the terrible crusades. Well, you're only critiquing it with a Christian concern for victims oriented into you. And the idea is you are not providing the the humility that the Bible asks of uh, the way we should treat each other. Because, see, the Bible preserves a full anthology of humans dealing with what does it mean to be in one with God? And what does it mean to be one with our neighbor? And how do we deal with problems? And that's why it preserves texts in the Old Testament and so forth that show humanity still doing sacrifice. But there's a slow move away from it, moving away from humans with Isaac and his, you know, the sacrifice of mm-hmm. the binding of Isaac. And there's a move away from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice. Condensed in that story. And so the Bible is slowly, you know, undermining that mythic frame that allows us to not see what we're doing. And slowly but surely, the Bible is starting to let us see the sausage making of how we create unity in our tribes, in our workplace, in our families, because families have scapegoats, businesses have scapegoats, nations have scapegoats, you know, worlds have scapegoats. These things and the Bible's help, helping us see this, so that's why we have the haunting of the cross. Mm. The cross is haunting our culture, and so the left and the right are both always trying to dress up their causes with the holy name of a victim. You know, so the right doesn't do it as well as the left, but the right tries to too. You know, yeah, America's being victimized by the globalists; therefore, we got to fight them off or. You know, and it's true. There's truth in all of this, you know, or Or, wealthy billionaires are flooding our country with cheap labor exploiting them. That's a victim there. And it's also the worker, the American worker is a victim there, you know, and, or, Hey, don't touch my guns because you are scapegoating innocent gun owners for the crimes of the, of the uh, psychopaths that shoot people, you know? And so there's all, it's the battle of scapegoating all the time of trying to say, no, I'm the victim. You're the monster. And then the other one says, no, We are the oppressed, you're the oppressor, and that's all we're doing. And see, here's why, here's so important. The reason this is happening is because Jesus destroyed the scapegoat mechanism. He defeated it through his example, which has, as a story, destroyed the ability for the scapegoat mechanism to unite people. This is so important here. This is where the rubber meets the road for why you need to understand thematic theory is that without the scapegoat mechanism working, this leads to chaos. This leads to the war of all against all that the scapegoat mechanism was invented or stumbled upon to prevent in the first place. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what is the, so I always sort of took the Girardian and this is one thing I appreciate about it very much. It's sort of the same reason I'm attracted to like, let's say the Austrian school of economics that it, it, deals with reality as it is, instead of wishing it away. So the Girardi intake is, hey, there's this, you know, these patterns, people have mimetic desire, and the scapegoating mechanism. And we can see that and say, wow, those are terrible, we should just stop doing those. But Girard doesn't sort of take that tack. And Christianity, I don't think does, it says, no, those are just the way humans are. So you have to learn to work with that properly. So the way that I understood you know Christ kind of smashing the being the final scapegoat being the 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 pure you know ple- completely blameless but but being the scapegoat the absence of that i guess i didn't take it as now the scapegoat mechanism is gone i took it more as now in order to get that same catharsis you have to basically look to Christ as the scapegoat to say you know put put your um, put your sins on him. Like that. it's not repeated in actuality, but that one act of, of dying on the cross was sort of the final scapegoating, uh, you know, whatever sacrifice that, that now people in order to avoid the chaos, you have to come back to that moment, so to speak. Um, is that, is that a correct understanding or, or if not, what is the answer to, okay, the scapegoating mechanisms smashed well, this seems like a bad thing because now there's more chaos and there's no outlet. What, what would be the, the answer to how to properly deal with that chaos now in the absence of the old, the old scapegoat?
1: Well, that, that, again, that's why this theory is essential. I, don't, I, don't, I can't think of anything more relevant if you're, if you're concerned about politics and world affairs, if you're concerned about spending, if you're concerned about the politicization of everything in our life, if you're concerned about cancel culture, if you're concerned about why the left and the right look identical, the more they compete over the same object, where did we hear that from? You know, well, if you're concerned about all this stuff, then you all roads lead through the Bible ultimately, but a way of helping you see the Bible the way I think it, it, it should be seen is, is mimetic theory. And what Gerard and many others around him, and I'm just trying to take it and move it further down the line in my time and glue it to the, to the, to the things that we see like you know gerard was not doing political theory you know so he wasn't getting into the stuff that i'm applying it to you know and he he had other folks around him doing that and they continue to do that kind of stuff i'm just taking it as best as i can and and bringing it to the logical conclusion for areas that affect my life i want to know why people continue to stubbornly eat garbage food pyramid guidelines you know we know it's garbage why do we Why do we trust people that say, don't wear a mask? Now you must wear a mask. Now you need to have two masks. This is this is the deconstruction of these hierarchies, these priestly castes that have had this sacred aura, but because Jesus destroyed the scapegoat mechanism, enough people can see what's happening and they start to question it. And there's no unity, you know? That's why every time a politician wins like Biden, I just want unity. I just want unity. I just want unity. But what does unity mean? It means you submit to me and you surrender to what we are going to do by force. That's the old might makes right that the ancient world was dominated by, but now they have to smuggle it in under the name of victims. So, you know, how do we avoid it? It's a tough thing. And it's not one of those things where you say, all right, we can just press a button and abolish all violence and oppression. That's kind of what the left is trying to do. You know, the left has this righteous zeal they're more Christian than the, than the right in, in some sense, you know, on their concern for victims. They, they have a hyperzealous, I want to fix everything, but they want to do it by force. And when you do it by force, it backfires because it doesn't recognize that you, just, the cycle. Yeah, you can't put people into groups and say, therefore, everybody in this group that looks like people in the past that did these things, therefore, they need to check themselves and stop talking. Like, like I understand what they're saying there. I'm not going to just diminish it. I know what they're doing. I understand it. And there is a generational uh, problem with oppression. But the, the way you solve that is not to say, like, what, what the word equity means is there needs to be revenge. That's hmm. ultimately what it means in critical theory. The idea is, because they say it's not about equality, it's about equity it's not just that we all get paid the same it's that you need to have some suffering you need a few weights on you you need a few minus well and and this is where the, that's zero the, sum you know
0: this is where i think the uh the libertarians and and i find their position less threatening because they're always in the minority compared to conservatives and liberals but this is where maybe they're bringing something from the from christianity that the left and the right aren't which is you know you you criticize libertarianism correctly for sometimes a characterized version. It's just you're one individual out here completely alone and, and not paying enough attention to how important uh, the social dynamics are of you know, being part of various groups and communities. But this is where I think the collective collectivist mindset that both the left and the right employ um, is very dangerous. It's almost like, well, if we can, if we can say that this group is guilty, or this group, we can, as a group, we can go and uh, commit war. Oh, it's the country. It's not me personally going and dropping a bomb on an innocent person I've never met. It's the country, right? Or, hey, we can go and punish this group of people because they're the oppressors as a group. And that's where I think Jesus is very uncomfortable when, in saying, okay, which individual among you is without sin? Cast the first stone. It's not we, the group, punishing this person all where, where all the guilt gets to be spread out. Right. It's like, okay, no individually take responsibility. What do you personally, you know, are you comfortable going and waging war against someone you've never met in the middle East? Are you comfortable going and, and saying, find another individual who you think is a privileged class that's oppressing someone and go and and, you know, do you think it's right to take their stuff personally or what I, I think that that's something we're trying to trying to hide behind these collective identities, um, you know, is very problematic.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that's, that's exactly right. That's why it's important to have that interdividual concept, which is that, yes, we respect the human person. I call it personhood. Uh, there's words like personalism, things like that you could use. Um, but but ultimately, it's it's about this relationship between the individual and the community, but it ultimately rests in kind of a protection of the individual, right? Which is kind of what libertarianism is trying to say in some way. But it doesn't get there in the right it needs christianity but it's afraid to touch that because oh that's religion (laughs) and it's like no no excuse me political philosophy is religion i'm sorry i'm sorry that you are so christian you can't see it yet but it is Hmm. that's the bad news sorry you're gonna have to deal with this okay because they because again see they think because we're good moderns they think and not just libertarians everybody we think that religion is over here and religion is what you fantasize about like like how? You know, let's use our imagination to make up stuff. And it's like, no, that's a very stupid approach to religion. Religion, the Latin for religion, means to bind together. So religion is the mechanism that binds us together through the expulsion of another or another group,
0: or 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 that binds together. It's the set of beliefs, perhaps, that binds together our otherwise disjointed um, preferences, biases, and ideas. Like like you have a religion, sort of, whether you. Want to or not. I just kind of is that belief. what you're getting
1: at? It, it's beyond belief. It's desire, you know, mm. desire, action, those things that we talk about, mimetic desire, these things. That is religion means to bind together, and we are bound together by expelling one. Because when we are in that moment of rivalry, bad blood is building, like it's building right now in our time. Fingers are pointing at each other. Hey, you're the problem. No, you're the problem. No, you're a jerk. You don't know how to treat people. No, you're mean. No, you know what your problem is? You have too much you don't have enough boundaries. You stole my chicken the other day. Well, you know what you did? You stole uh, you know, my my pail of water. I saw you at the at the water at the uh, at the well. And this stuff builds, right? And if you can't get along with your neighbor, it it builds contagiously. You feel it. I mean, you go into an you go into a community where there's a lot of conflict, you feel it. You go into a neighborhood, you know, you go into a lunchroom. I remember in high school, they'd throw chair. you know, they'd get into a fight right here at one table. You know, that thing would spiral out to the whole lunchroom. Chairs were flying left and right. Nobody knew what was happening. It was just a contagion of aggression. And you can feel it if you're near a fight. See, people don't want to talk about this in intellectual circles. It's like, I don't, I'm not around fights. You know, I'm doing a, you know, we're doing podcasts. It's like, no, this is, we all know this if you've lived life. You go around people and you feel a fight breaking out at a bar and it makes your heart race. It makes you get into it. You start, you know, you don't even know what's happening, but it makes you feel alive in a way. And so what happens if that channels into one target, all that adrenaline, all that intensity, that visceral boom, you channel it into a common direction. You say, that was the problem. That was a witch. She put a spell on us. That's why we were hating each other, man. I feel so much better. Don't you? Yes. Let's go see what, what else is playing next week at the theater, you know what I mean? And see, that's where we get movies. That's why you feel better when Darth Vader destroys Emperor Palpatine, the catharsis, right? But see, in the ancient mythology that, that the Bible de- destroyed, Darth Vader would not sacrifice his life for his son. You know, he would not sacrifice, you know, that's Christ's story infecting the structure of myth, which is not fully Christian. It's partially. See, Star Wars is partially Christian. To be truly Christian, there would be a total reconciliation of Emperor Palpatine. You would say, Emperor, who hurt you when you were a kid? You know? <laughs> How did you get those scars on your face? Let's talk about it. You know? That's why nobody likes Christian, the full Christian story, because it, it ruins the—we always want justice. We always want to have an oppressor and oppressed. And ultimately, as I said, there's a place for self-defense. So if Emperor Palpatine truly is a psychopath, at some point, he might get killed when he's trying to torture another person in real life. I'm saying, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so there is something to that, old pagan see that's what the thing is about Jesus man. the Christianity does not does not scandalize paganism. it tries to redeem what was true about it and it and it, bring, it brings it together with Judaism you know with the Jewish tradition and it brings this fusion together and it's so beautiful how it all works on so many different levels, like the idea of the Trinity, the one in the many. that resolves the problem of collectivism collectivism and individualism. That resolves, well wait a second. We are communitarian creatures, you know, and that's why, you know, it's really fashionable right now to bash libertarianism on the left and the right. It's very fashionable to do that uh, because it's, it's always good to just say, Hey, look, you know, they don't even understand community. This is a joke. This is what you do when you're in high school. And it's like, no, what you're doing is just a mirror reaction to that. You know, you're trying to communitarianize everything, but it's both. It's the one and the many and the many, according to the Bible, Cannot expel the one. That was the whole point of why that the story text says Caiaphas says it's better that one man die than the the whole nation perish. And then Jesus undergoing that that very thing, but being innocent, repudiates that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so we still are baked into the sacrificial ideologies of our time so we don't want to allow that story to press our hearts because if we did we would stop doing a lot of the stuff that we're doing we wouldn't even have a minimum wage law because even so so simple of a little thing banal thing like that is based on sacrificial violence it's based on the idea that we can put you in a criminal cage if you do not pay the wage that we've decreed and the person says well what are you doing are you worshiping the market again? Is that what you're doing, Mister Liberty guy, or something? I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm actually treating my neighbor the way Jesus says we should treat our neighbor, which is or, that you or, don't. Or even to
0: the, you know, not just the employer, but it, it's it's also a law against the employee that says, right, you are not allowed to offer your services for less than this amount. Uh, right. We don't care if that means no one will ever hire you. You know, like right. we're not concerned about you. We're concerned about some other abstract group that we're calling working people uh we want to give them a pay raise right but it's telling that in that real individual person we will we will come after you with the full force of the state if you dare to offer to work for less or if you dare to offer to pay someone less than that
1: right that's why ideology today is the modern vestige of myth and policy today is the modern vestige of ritual and taboo okay Mm. you see those things go hand in hand that's something that takes a while to unpack a little bit but Basically, all these things like occupational licensing and stuff—these are rites of passage that are vestiges from our past. See what I mean? <laughs> you have to go through X, Y, and Z to be able to have the sacred status of being an expert in this field, and it's got to be this way, this way, this way. And if you if you violate that, the collective can get you. That's what rites of passage were. You got to run through the, the the sharp rocks, run on hot, hot coals, jump into the thing. You know, battle of swords, fight, and whoever wins is the crown, the king of the the festival for that year. These are rites of passage that we hold on into. We we they're they they're partially deconstructed because of Christianity modernizing and demystifying the the culture. You see, hmm. Christianity is the end of religion, but it doesn't end it in a haughty, absolute, immediate way. It's a it's a slow deconstruction of the sacrificial hierarchies of religion.
0: It's that, that idea of power under rather than power over. It, it's right, he doesn't sort of try slowly. to overthrow
1: it overnight. That's what yeah. the left wants to do, overthrow the whole thing. The whole thing's got to go. And the it's right an does it, too. The right one, overthrow globalism, overthrow it all. It's got to get power and use force to stop all these predatory multinational corporations, which they are. And they are embedded. I'm, I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, you know, the Davos crowd and all these giant United Nations and all these things, Look what the WHO does. All this stuff, this incestuous relationship, corporatism, it is a huge, huge problem, you know, and, and I'm not an absolutist about things. I, I, you know, people say, you know, oh, you, if you're going to be talking the way you do, David, you must have complete open borders. And I'm like, what? Open status borders? Okay. Is that really a compassionate thing? Is that really a compassionate thing? Can we really get there? I'm all about Christianity teaches you humility and incrementalism. But it's also an absolute change on the individual level. For example, Mm -hmm. if I'm in a jury duty and someone's arrested for suspended license, I have a right to judge the the law as a Christian and not cast my stone because he didn't have Caesar's decree to uh, drive a car. Now, because I'm a Christian, I'm going to go one step further than just the libertarian jury nullification of, no, he's a sovereign individual. No, right. No, don't, don't mess with them. That's it. I would go along to that neighbor and say, Hey, look, we got you out of, you know, we, we rendered a verdict on the law itself. You're free. You don't have to go to a cage where you could be assaulted. Okay. That that, because we're humans, we're alive. Okay. We see you as ourselves, but here's the deal. Caesar says, do that thing, do it. Because when they come for your tunic, give them your, when they come for your outer garment, give them your tunic too. That's what Jesus says. So when the bully comes at you, and oftentimes the state acts like a bully, you don't go, oh, I'm going to not wear, I'm going to resist. It's like, okay, if you want to do that, that's okay. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says nonviolent, you know, non-resistance. You show the power of not cowering in fear, but obeying the law. Obey the law. I understand there's a line where they're telling you to turn in your neighbor to a a camp or something which has happened in america i mean it has right in japan japanese folks and other folks it could happen it happened in europe so there's there's certain points where it's, i guess conscience objection you know comes into play but by and large i believe that we should obey what caesar says but but here's the point we also have a hand in what caesar is supposed to do because unlike unlike the early church The early church was not invited to vote. Caesar didn't say, hey, Peter, sit on a jury with me and decide what we should do with this guy, you know? We didn't have that kind of relationship to the state back then. But we have it today. We are asked to give our opinion in the public square. We're asked to participate in the execution of law and jury duty. We're asked to vote and hire people to represent us. And when we hire people, my rule of thumb generally is that you hire people to do things on your behalf that you would find morally okay for you to do if you had to carry it out yourself. Okay. So I'm not asking whether you're physically capable of carrying out the law, you know, if you, you know, you're scared of guns or physically frail or whatever. I'm not asking that I'm talking about in the moral principle of it all. Are you okay with carrying out the law that you want that politician to put on the books or keep on the books on your If you're not okay with carrying it out yourself, don't hire somebody to do it for you. So if you're not okay with taking your neighbor because you saw them in the window doing a little cocaine and barging into their house with guns, with a no-knock raid and tasing them if they disobey or resist or, or, or fight back and putting your knee on their neck, if you're not okay with doing that yourself, then don't you ever hire anybody who would do that to your neighbor on your behalf. That's what Jesus teaches you to do, to take responsibility for the stone that's in your hand. When you go in that voting booth, it's like a voting right. You hide behind the curtain and nobody knows what you do. It's a secret ritual, you know? Nobody knows what happens. It's like a dirty little secret. And they want every, and that's why they get mad when you don't vote, because they want everybody to have moral taint on them. You signed up for this too, you know. You know, you t- yeah. you did this yeah. too. You put your hand in, you voted for Trump, you voted for Biden. You, that's all we always do. That's way, that way we feel like we're all buying into it. We're trying to create the unanimity that the scapegoat mechanism used to create yeah. instantly. But what, Jesus broke.
0: <laughs> so, so to wrap it up, we've, we've, we've gone, and we could, we could go a lot deeper into a lot of this stuff, but we, we've covered a, a good bit of ground. To bring it back to the question, how do you, how do you get the catharsis without the scapegoat mechanism now that it's smashed? What is the proper way to deal with the mimetic desire um, absent, absent that mechanism? Well,
1: that's a good point. And, and, and you get that. I thought about that. Let me say how to put this. It's, you get that through a few different ways. At the heart of a scapegoat society, which we are, and the whole world is, in various degrees, they're infected with Christian concern and other religions by the way have pieces of this too so it's not like it's a complicated thing but 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 the point is is at the heart of a scapegoating society is envy and at the heart of a christian love society is what gratitude is thankfulness right being content and that gratitude foundationally allows you to get, not get into rivalry not get into envy and scandal and ultimately spiral into a sacrifice to bring it all back together, right? And so that's what we need to to be aware of. It's to be aware of the fact that this stuff cannot be solved through logic or facts. It has to be solved through skin in the game by putting your life uh, into the mix of, of problems and taking up your cross and saying, you know what, instead of sacrificing my neighbor, I'm going to sacrifice my right to sacrifice my neighbor. Hmm. You know what I mean? I'm going to give up that feeling like I got to I gotta have my defense against you wicked people that are voting badly or doing badly. No, I can create what you were saying, catharsis. Where does catharsis come from without uh, violence? Creativity, mm. you know, creativity, art. Where do you feel catharsis from? When mm. you have that aha moment, when you do something creatively beautiful or you watch something that's a piece that captures the mystery of life or the, the, the depths of the human soul emotionally that creates catharsis. That gives you, wow. You know, that takes you up, that transcends you out of your mundane, you know, human feeling and experience. So that's a kind of catharsis through through creation, not destruction. You see the state, the heart of the state is a scapegoat mechanism. And the heart of that is destruction. And the heart of what Jesus wants us to build is to learn to bind ourselves together through mutual self-sacrifice with creativity as the glue, not violence, not preemptive coercion, like what politics offers. us. So that's really, it's a simple message is put your skin in the game, go solve cancer. Don't wait for somebody to hire, don't hire someone politically, you know, go. S- the, the world is hungry for solutions, you know, and the, and the state is the only game in town they think. Who can provide a lot of these solutions?
0: Yeah, the, 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 they, they want to the, have
1: clean air. They want to have energy too cheap to meter. So go make it yourself, or go find somebody who's doing it, and support them financially, give them a little bit of money, or, or put tell their story. You know, come around and build up creativity, not destruction. And that innovation is what makes the state become more and more obsolete in different aspects of our lives, because if we have energy too cheap to meter that we can have our own decentralized energy in every home. And if we have cures for cancer and all these diseases, we don't need universal health care, and we don't need a green new deal. If we've got our own clean energy with carbon free, you know, we can solve these things. And that yeah. makes those statist coercive solutions just kind of evaporate.
0: Yeah. I love that. I love that message. And that's, that has been very powerful in my own life, you know, coming to that realization rather than, Sort of offloading the the desire, the responsibility for desires, or the end of, I want the world to be. And I'll just you know, if I hold a certain ideology, now I'm in a group of people that wants that to happen. Therefore, it's it's good. And and realizing, you know, that's why that's why I ended up in entrepreneurship. That's why I ended up starting companies. In instead of being in the world of kind of you know where I was previously, kind of just the world of ideas professionally, and saying, hey, I can build an alternative to higher education system or to help people uh, get their career started so that they don't have to rely on the corrupt, you know, status-seeking uh, university system. I can, I can create something right now that brings into the world the kind of changes that I want instead of looking for Who's talking about these things so I can you know vote for them or go and, and come you know follow them on Twitter and and throw my signal to the world that I support these ideas and hope someone else solves it but rather like what can I right now build? How can I build the, the, the kind of things that I want to see? Um, that was very that was very powerful for me. David, this has been awesome. where uh, where should people go if they want to hear more of your stuff and, and check you out? A
1: website that has all of our, uh, I have a daily radio program and we have a few affiliates on FM and AM. And then we also have, have uh, a podcast that, that carries, it's you know on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your uh, podcasts at Spotify. Just search for David Gronoski, um, David Gronoski on whatever platform you use, uh, YouTube, we do video streams on there of my daily radio show. And then we have, so we have two things. A Neighbor's Choice is the daily radio show. And then Things Hidden is our podcast that kind of comes out once or twice a week. And that's a deep dive where we get into this stuff. So that's, A Neighbor's Choice is kind of like, you know, my, my, my general news analysis of the day with interviews. And we got a lot of interesting folks on there. And then the um, Things Hidden is more of a deep dive podcast, online only podcast. All of that is found at neighborschoice.com emphasis on a as people say th- sometimes people think i'm saying uh you know when you tell hey what's your name you're like uh david and they're like they just think you're stuttered uh you know but you're actually mm-hmm. so it's a neighbor's and i'm a very stickler about you got to put the a in there because i've thought about it and i said neighbor's choice that doesn't ring it doesn't ring it's about how it sounds aesthetic is important and when i open up that show like you're you're you said your kids like it's important yeah. how you wait, make those words flow You're listening to neighbor's choice. No, that does not fit. You're listening to a neighbor's choice. Now that flows, you see? So that's where we get into the, the fun things about aesthetic that are important. You know, that's the problem. If we just tell good stories with the gospel technology in mind, looking for the victims, not to demonize the oppressor, but to build a relationship where we can redeem the oppressor and the oppressed. That's what we're called to do, to love the unlovable. And that includes ourselves, because there's a lot to not love about yourself. And if you don't resolve that, you're not going to have a healthy relationship with your neighbor and other people around you. You're going to love them in a dark way, in a twisted way. So all these ideologies are just manifestations of bad depiction, bad understanding of love. You know, Mr. Rogers, the great philosopher, the late philosopher said, love is at the root of all things, love or the lack of it. That's the key.
0: David, thank you so much, man. Appreciate your time.
1: Very good. Thanks for having me.